Well, good morning. We're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 5 again this morning. So why don't we go ahead and turn there. We're going to read the first 12 verses again. And look at the next beatitude here in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, today we're going to be focusing on Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as we come to this uh, beatitude in verse 6, you'll notice there's a shift in the emphasis from the previous uh, beatitudes that we've looked at. The first two were, I would say, of a more negative focus. Um, Blessed are, in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So in this beatitude, there is a recognition, as we talked about, a recognition of our spiritual poverty, that we're spiritually bankrupt. Um, There's nothing that we have in ourselves that we can contribute to God for our salvation. We come completely empty-handed. And then the second beatitude in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. And in this beatitude, there is a sorrow and mourning over our sin. As we see our emptiness, as we see the sin in our heart, there is a mourning over that. Not only do we recognize the spiritual poverty, but we see something of the depth of our sin. And both of those first two beatitudes have what I would say a more negative focus Um, But as in all the Beatitudes, there is a blessing. God is telling us that these are the characteristics that mark a true Christian. And so when when Jesus says blessed, we talked about this earlier, it's the idea of happiness. There's this, you are in a happy condition if you are in this state of being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin. Well, the third beatitude is kind of what I would call the bottom of the curve before going back up. 
And in this beatitude in verse 5, blessed are the gentle or meek, we see that the attitude that flows from the first two beatitudes, once we have seen our spiritual poverty and once we have felt a sense of our sin and mourned over it, the result is a humble, submissive attitude towards God. No longer are we uh, confident in ourselves for anything. That has been broken as we see our sin and our guilt. And in, in its place, there is a quiet, humble submissiveness to God. And that humble submissiveness is called meekness. And this attitude of meekness is really the bedrock or the foundation for all the other beatitudes that are going to follow from that. Once the self-confidence and pride have been stripped away and meekness has taken its place in our life, then and only then can we begin to strive towards these other beatitudes, such as what we're going to look at here in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I was thinking about this in, um, in the natural realm. Uh, if any of you have ever planted a garden before, um, you know you can't just go and sprinkle seeds out in the lawn or out in a field. There's some prep work that has to go into it first. If you have rocks or um, roots or trash buried in your yard, you got to dig that stuff out first before you can plant a, uh, the seed so that it will actually bear fruit. Um, I've experienced this um, in construction. You have a project that you're wanting to do on your house, and you're all excited to put up something new. Um, but first, you begin to peel something back, and you realize, oh, no, there's a problem there. There's some mold or mildew. You don't just start putting the new wallpaper over mildew or painting over mildew. You have to cut it out. You have to get to the root, cut it out, and then you can begin to build back. And that's essentially what we have here in these Beatitudes. You start by recognizing the sin and dealing with the problem. And then from there, you begin to build off of that. And we begin to strive for these positive Beatitudes. And that's what we're going to look at here in verse 6. So this one here in verse 6 is the first of the positive Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we see something here that is primarily positive. Here we're seeking for and desiring a positive thing, and that is righteousness. Now the imagery that Jesus uses here is of hungering and thirsting. And I want to highlight a few observations about this imagery before we begin to discuss what righteousness is. And the first thing I want to highlight is the necessity of what we are hungering and thirsting for. In physical life, what do we hunger and thirst for? Well, food and water, the necessities of life. Because without these necessities of life, we will die. You can't make it very long without eating, and even less time without drinking. Um, I read somewhere that it was just a matter of three or four days without water, and you would perish. You must have food and water to live. 
They are vital to life. They are necessary for life. So Jesus is telling us here something about the importance of righteousness to our spiritual life. Just as we cannot survive spiritually, or I'm sorry, physically without food and water, so we cannot survive spiritually without righteousness. But think with me also of the audience and the time and place that Jesus was preaching this sermon. He was preaching this sermon in the arid Middle East to people who had likely experienced famine and drought at some point in their lives. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see many different instances where there was severe famine and severe drought, so severe that people actually had to move to a region, move out of their region to an area where there was water or where there was food. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived. The classic example there was um, Jacob and his sons all moving to Egypt because there was food in Egypt and there wasn't any uh, where they were in Israel. Well, we really know nothing of this here in America. We've all experienced at various times financial hardships at some point in our lives. Some of us have struggled to pay the rent and bills, and some have had to go without modern essentials like a vehicle or a phone. But very few here, if any, have been so destitute that they had no food and no water. And this really is an incredible blessing that we live here in America. But think about this. You basically can't go without water in America. I mean, go to any public place, and there's going to be likely going to be a drinking fountain that you can drink water for free. You don't have to pop quarters in. You can just drink water for free. Um, And even if you're without food, there are places that you can go um, where you can at least get some of the basics Uh, basic food items provided, and that is a tremendous blessing. But think about how your life would be different if you lived in a time and place where your big concern for each day was whether you could find food and water for your family for one day. All the other details of life would seem very trivial if you were in a place of having to struggle just to provide food and water for a day. Think about all the things that there's discussion, debate, and consumption of time, uh, entertainment, sports, politics, all these things that consume our mind. They would be of very little importance if your big issue today was where am I going to find food and water? If you were in that situation, you would not describe yourself as having a mild desire for some food and water. You know, kind of like, it would be nice to have food and water today, but I guess I'm doing all right. If you are a starving person, you would have the desperation that you would expect. I must find food and water. And so the question is, do we have that same kind of desperation in our spiritual lives? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness with desperation like a starving man? Or do we have a take-it-or-leave-it kind of attitude? You know, it sounds nice to live a righteous life, but I think I'm doing okay right now. 
the spiritually well person sees how desperate a situation they are really in and longs for righteousness in that way. They see their spiritual poverty. They see that they have nothing to contribute to their salvation. They see the seriousness of their sin, and they mourn over that. And as a result, they long long for and hunger for true righteousness. Well, what is this righteousness that Jesus is speaking about here? How is it defined? And I'm going to define it in a more general sense, and then I want to examine it in a little more detail. But first, in a more general sense. Um, I find it helpful oftentimes in studying any topic, and that is to define your terms. Look up the definition. And I looked up the word righteousness in a Bible dictionary and found this definition. Purity of heart and rectitude of life. Conformity of heart and life to the divine law. That's kind of a summarized definition. Purity of heart, rectitude of life, conformity of heart and life to the divine law. And I had to to look up the definition of rectitude because I didn't know what that meant. It means morally correct behavior or thinking, and then it gives as a synonym righteousness. (laughs) So it's kind of a circular definition there. So righteousness, you could also think of it in this way. It's associated with holiness. Think about hungering for righteousness is the same idea as hungering, desiring a holy life. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is a desire to be free from sin. Not just external acts of sin, but even from the desire for sin. In other words, it's a desire for heart righteousness or inner righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What kind of righteousness? The kind that not only avoids murder, but also seeks to be free from anger against his brother. The kind of righteousness that not only seeks to avoid adultery, but also seeks to be free even from a lustful thought. In other words, internal heart righteousness. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is the desire to live a holy life, the desire to exemplify the Beatitudes in our daily life, the desire to show the fruit of the Spirit in every word, thought, and deed. And really, if we wanted to sum it up, hungering and thirsting after righteousness is essentially the desire to be like Christ, to have that kind of an attitude that we see the person of Christ and we see how he lived his life and we are saying, Lord, I want to be like that. I want to have the love that he had. I want to have the hatred for sin that he had. I want to mourn over sin like he mourned over sin. I want to rejoice in truth like he rejoiced in truth. That is what it is to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to be like Christ. Well, that is the righteousness that Jesus is speaking about in a general sense, but I want to consider it in a little more detail and begin to look at some scripture here. 
The Bible speaks about righteousness in a variety of ways, and although the same word may be used, um, they are not all describing the same aspect of righteousness. And this morning I want to briefly examine three different ways that I believe the Bible um, uh, describes or talks about righteousness. And as we look at these, I hope to show how they can be applied to this passage here about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the three uses of the word righteousness that I want to consider today are, first, righteousness given to us by Christ, as in justification, declared righteous in God's sight. So that's the first one. The second one, righteous living, as in sanctification, doing deeds of righteousness. And then third, righteousness in the world around us, as in the desire that the believer has for all men to love and honor God and live righteous lives. And one way to remember these three is, first, righteousness on us, given to us by God. Second, righteousness in us, produced by the Holy Spirit. And then third, righteousness around us. So that's just one way that I found helpful to kind of distinguish the three. So the first one, righteousness on us, given to us by God. And this is one of the key foundational doctrines of the Bible, and that is that in order to be accepted by God, we must be righteous. And because we are born in Adam and are born with a sinful nature, we cannot have fellowship with God. Sin has separated us from God. We must be righteous, but it's impossible for us to have the righteousness that God requires apart from him giving it to us. And that is what happened in the person of Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness. Everything he did was right and good. Just like Andy's been talking about the the attributes of God. God is all good. Everything Jesus did was good. He was well-pleasing to the Father. And on the cross, the perfect, sinless Son of God took our sin upon himself and bore the wrath of God for our sins. And all those who put their faith in him have their sins forgiven, so that's the negative record erased, but also they are given the very righteousness of Christ. So our sin-filled debt is transferred to Christ, and his righteousness is given to us in return. Talk about the great exchange to to be rid of this awful debt, this awful burden, and to be given the very righteousness of Christ in return. Think about this. Every believer has been given the very righteousness of Christ all the good that he did on this, in this life, on this earth, has been credited to your account. And we see that in a number of passages, and I had to narrow it down. I'm going to read just three passages. You don't have to turn to these if you don't want to. The first one is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
It says this, he, speaking of God, he made him, Christ, who knew no sin. In other words, he was sinless. To be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We were the ones who were sinners, but he became sin on our account that we might become what we weren't, and that is righteous, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Another one in Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaking here, he says, I'm jumping in the middle here, it says, and may be found in him, may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Here it's very clearly spelled out for us. Where does this righteousness come from? It comes from God. He's the one who gives it to us. And how do we receive it? How do we access this righteousness? Through faith. Through faith in Christ, this righteousness is given to us from God. And then in the Old Testament, there's a a real good uh, illustration of this in Isaiah 61, verse 10. It says this, I will uh, rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So here you have this wonderful word picture here of being wrapped in something, wrapped in a robe. What is this robe? Righteousness. God is the one who is placing this robe on you, this robe of righteousness. Well, if you are poor in spirit and mourn for your sin, and if you in humble submission to God see your need of a Savior and hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, you will be satisfied. His righteousness will be given to you. And we have this promise here in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see that? That hungering and thirsting, God is saying you're in a blessed state if you're hungering and thirsting because I am going to satisfy that desire, give you that righteousness. Well, that's the first one, righteousness on us, given to us by God. But I want to move on to the second one. And really the second one is, I think, primarily what this passage in Matthew 5 is referring to, and that is righteousness in us um, with the help of the Holy Spirit. So the person who has experienced the forgiveness of their sins and who has been given the very righteousness of Christ is in a very blessed and happy state. They rejoice in their sins being forgiven. And they rejoice in their acceptance before God, that they now have fellowship with God. But at the same time, there is within every believer a holy discontentment. They are thankful for Christ's righteousness that has been given to them, but they are also conscious of and grieve over the remaining sinfulness in their own life. They long to be free from sin 
and to live righteous lives. In other words, it's not enough for the Christian just to say, God counts me as righteous, now it doesn't matter how I live. The the Christian longs to be like Christ. We long for that to be a reality in our own life. If you are one who hungers and thirsts for this type of righteousness, Jesus says you are blessed. If you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to be free from sin in your life, and to live a righteous life. That's what this is talking about, living a righteous life. What are you to do? If you have that hunger and thirst, you're longing for this, what now? What do you do? Do you pray and ask God to take away the wrong desires that you have and to give you right desires? Absolutely. That is key. We go before God in humility. We confess our inability. We confess our need to him, and we ask him to give us um, his spirit, to give us help in this way. We confess our need to the Lord and ask him for grace to overcome sin. But as we do that, what next? Do we sit around passively waiting for God to do his part in answering our prayer? I prayed. I hungered and thirst for righteousness. I prayed and asked God. Now I'm going to sit here and wait for it to happen. Well, obviously, no, that is not what we do. The process of sanctification in a believer's life is not a passive process. Scripture is filled with exhortations for us to take action in our lives, to put off sin and to live righteous lives. The the imagery of putting off and putting on. And I, I, again, lots of examples I could give, but I just selected uh, one here. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul speaking to Timothy, but it applies to all of us, says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So here Paul is exhorting Timothy to flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. And both of these verbs, flee and pursue, involve action. They're not passive verbs, they're active verbs. If we are going to live godly lives, we need to have that same mentality of fleeing sin and pursuing righteousness. In other words, it's a conscious effort. We are actively pursuing something good and fleeing from something evil. Um, Just this morning as I was looking over my notes, I thought of the example there of Joseph. You know, he had been sold into slavery and um, went there to Egypt, and he was working in Potiphar's house. Um, And he's seeking to honor God, in other words, to live a righteous life there in Potiphar's house doing his work as unto the Lord, and the Lord was blessing Potiphar because of Joseph. So he is doing this this very thing of pursuing righteousness, trying to honor the Lord in that. But in the midst of him honoring God in this way, temptation comes in the form of Potiphar's wife who tries to seduce him and is calling to him. He starts by just ignoring it, but when the temptation, when she reaches out and grabs a hold of him, What does he do? Lord, you know, just help me to know how to handle this situation here. I just want to honor you. No, he leaves his robe behind and flees. He gets out. 
So you see that there, that um, the two coming together, fleeing youthful lusts and pursuing righteousness. In other words, there's action involved. And it's a conscious effort. And we daily have to fight this, not just in the area of lust and temptation in that way, but even in areas like um, unbelief and fear and anxiety and worries about uh, the pressures of life. We have to take action in these things and say, Lord, I want to do what's right in this. I want to trust you. I want to believe you. And so we have to put to death these um, wrong thoughts or, or anxious thoughts. Well, how do we do that? How do we pursue righteousness? How do we grow in righteousness? Because here, um, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it. So if we're hungering and thirst for it, we want to grow in this way. How do we do that? Well, another passage in 2 Timothy, I think, applies to this. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So here we have this word righteousness in this passage. And we're told that we can be trained in righteousness. But how? What is the source of that training? Scripture. Scripture, inspired by God, is profitable for training in righteousness. And then the follow-up verse in verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. By applying God's word to our lives is how we are trained in righteousness. Scripture is one of the primary means of us growing in righteousness. In fact, I think we can say this confidently. We cannot hunger and thirst for righteousness without also hungering and thirsting for God's word. If our appetite for God's word is weak, our appetite for righteousness will also be weak. So to the degree that we're hungering and thirsting and digging into God's word, really hungry to hear what God has to say, to the same extent we will be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to live it, to do what God says in his word. Do you love God's word and long for it? If so, you will also love righteousness and long for more of it in your life. And so this is an encouragement. I don't mean this as a discouragement. I mean this as an encouragement. If you're hungering and thirsting for God's word, you also will be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, a question might come up uh, that I want to address here just briefly. Is our pursuit of living righteous lives entirely on our shoulders? I said that we are not passive in this pursuit of righteousness, but rather that we are to be active, putting sin to death and striving to live righteous lives. But is it all on us? What is God's role in this process? And is God passive in our growth in righteousness? And again, we can say not at all. It's not all on us. And for this, I would like, if you have your Bible, to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, 
very familiar passage, but it's a very encouraging passage when we think about it in light of what we're talking about here, um, about hungering and thirsting for righteousness and putting sin to death and desiring to live godly, righteous lives. Um, This, I think, you'll find to be a great encouragement. So I'm going to read, begin reading in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, And put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So here we see clearly what is going on under the surface, you might say. God is at work. He is not leaving this job of sanctification to us alone. He is at work and it is through his spirit. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. We are able to pursue living righteous lives and to put sin to death because God has given us his spirit that causes us to do that, that gives us these desires. And there's another verse that I think um, is a really good illustration or a good um, example for us in this balance of whose responsibility is it in this realm of sanctification. And that's in Philippians chapter 2. And actually, Andrew spoke on this not that long ago, probably been a couple of years ago, maybe that he uh, uh, preached through Philippians. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, which are, again, very familiar verses, says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here we have the perfect balance of the believer's responsibility in the pursuit of righteous living and God's role in this process. Paul exhorts us in verse 12 to work out, or you um, might think of it in this way, to live out our salvation, to live it, to have it be a reality in our daily life, not just something that you know we pin somewhere and say, see, I got that badge, I'm a Christian, but it's something that we're actually living out, that it's a reality in our life. We've been forgiven our sins and given the righteousness of Christ, therefore we should live 
righteous lives. But how can we do that? Well, the answer is in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. God is the one who is at work in the believer. And because of that, they are able to live out their salvation. They're able to walk in righteousness. We are not alone in this process. And I want you to take encouragement in that. You are not fighting this battle alone. God has given you his spirit. He wants to see you living righteous lives, holy lives, set apart. But at the same time, we don't want to become calloused or indifferent in this way. There is a conscious battle. There is an effort, and we need to strive to live righteous lives. Going back then to Matthew, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's a promise here. If you are hungering and thirsting to live a righteous life, God says you will be satisfied. He will give you the desires of your heart. We won't live perfectly righteous lives until we're in heaven. But until then, God is going to continue to give us more and more of his spirit. And I trust that if you look back in your life, you'll see, yes, I have grown. The Lord has helped me. There were things I struggled with that I feel like God has given me victory in. I have new desires. I used to not long for God's word, and now I do. You'll see progress and growth in this way. That is God satisfying your desire for righteousness. Well, then third and finally here, righteousness around us. So finally, as a person has experienced the forgiveness of their sins and has been given the very righteousness of Christ, that's the idea of um, righteousness on us, and as they have sought to put sin to death in their lives and to live righteous lives before God, which is what we just looked at, the idea of righteousness in us, there is also a desire that believers have for others to live godly lives and for righteousness to be sought after in the world around them. In other words, it's not, we're not content to just, well, I've got my tick to heaven and I'm living a holy life and nothing else matters. There is a desire that we have for souls to be saved. We're not satisfied with the fact that sin is continuing in those around us. We want to see sin put to death, not just in our own lives, but also in the lives of our loved ones, our children, lost parents, lost relatives that we have. We long to see those relationships restored with God, for there to be a right uh, fellowship that others have with God. We also long for righteousness in the world around us. Think about all the evil that's taking place. Does your heart mourn over and grieve over the, the wickedness in the world around you? Do you long to see righteousness exalted and sin to be punished, sin to be dealt with? I was thinking about how, um, you know, we, we certainly do desire for righteousness to be exalted, Um, and sin to be, or wickedness to be punished, but it seems like oftentimes in this life, it seems like wickedness is celebrated and righteousness is persecuted. 
And the believer, we're not satisfied with that. We long for there to be a sense in which God's name, God's honor is magnified and glorified and men and women are seeking after him. Thinking about Proverbs 14, verse 34, it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And we, I mean, we're not going to see... Um, this idea of paradise here on earth, um, you know, a perfect, a perfect nation living perfectly holy lives, but we certainly do desire to see revival. We, we long to see men and women repent of their sins and turn to Christ. And I was thinking, as always, Christ is an example to us in this area. He mourned over the sin and hardness of heart in others, but he also praised the faith in others as well. So you see both of those things there. He's mourning over and grieving over sin, but rejoicing in true faith, true righteousness. Um, just a couple of examples that I, I thought of here um, along this line. Uh, Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Um, this is the negative example. In Mark 3, 5, it says, After looking around at them with anger, looking around at the the crowd, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So here he was about to heal this man, and they're they're upset with him because it's the Sabbath. You can't do this on the Sabbath. And Jesus asked them, you know, is it it lawful? Is it permitted to do good on the Sabbath rather than evil? And they remained silent. And he, it says, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. That's a right response when you see hardness of heart, to be grieved in your own heart about that. But on the flip side, we have a positive example here, the centurion's faith. Remember, he comes, his servant is is sick, and he's crying out to the Lord to have mercy on him. And it says this in Matthew 8.10, When Jesus heard this, heard what the centurion said, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. In other words, he's commending, he's rejoicing in this man's faith and saying, This is good. I I delight in this. And that's an example to all of us in in the lives around us to mourn over the sin, but also to rejoice when we see righteousness, when we see someone walking in faith, to rejoice, to praise the Lord, to encourage one another in that way. Well, Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.13, Um, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this here, this is the ultimate fulfillment of all three of these that we've talked about. Righteousness on us, righteousness in us, and righteousness around us. The fulfillment is in the new heavens and the new earth. We will someday be with Christ and we will understand in a fuller detail what it means to have Christ's righteousness upon us. We will finally be able to live righteous lives without even a hint of sin, no evil motives, no sinful thoughts, just to be able to pursue him in perfect love. But also we will be around those and in a place where perfect righteousness dwells in heaven. And so that is the ultimate fulfillment of this 
um, beatitude here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But in closing, I want to bring out one final thought. Our hungering and thirsting for righteousness for us and for others is really a desire to be in a right relationship with God. We want ourselves and others around us to be in a right relationship with God. We long for Christ's righteousness to cover us and for us to have fellowship with God. And we long for this in others around us as well. We long for sin to be done away with um, in our lives and for us to walk in complete fellowship with God. Nothing hindering our relationship with him. No sin, no wrong motives or wrong desires. And as we think of hungering and thirsting for righteousness in these ways, I think we begin to see a close parallel of hungering and thirsting for righteousness and hungering and thirsting for God himself. The parallel there between hungering for righteousness and hungering for God. To desire Christ's righteousness is to desire Christ himself. To desire unhindered fellowship with God is really the desire for God himself. And David speaks this way in the Psalms when, we, uh, when he says in Psalm 42, familiar passage, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So really, the believer, as we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we really are hungering and thirsting for more reality of God in our own lives. We're desiring to be like Christ and to be with Christ, to be with him. And we see that there in that psalm, as the deer pants for the water brooks. Well, amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied.